it always is a blessing to me. I can't help but think of uh, the psalmists and the sons of Korah and how they would lead the congregation in song and worship. And you guys will do that with us again. So thank you. Thank you, uh, Todd, for coming. I also want to take a moment to highlight uh, some other special guests we have in here. Uh, Pat and Donna McAllister. Can you just raise your hands for us there? Thank you. Thank you. So this is Pat. Yeah, welcome. Welcome. You guys don't even know who they are yet. You just know they're special, right? So you're all special in the Lord. So, um, but I wanted to highlight uh, their presence here. Pat works with uh, the Commission Network. Uh, he has organized, uh, initially it was through Kihei Baptist. Now he is serving the state at the convention level, HPBC. And uh, Pat is the one responsible for coordinating a number of the mission teams that have come out to serve with us from Louisiana, from Arizona, uh, and other places to help do some of the facility work here to help reach out to the community. So, uh, Pat, I just want to thank you for your labor of love and what you do. And you guys ought to do the same after service. If you could just love on him and encourage him. It's a great work. So thank you and welcome. The title of the sermon... Oddly enough, uh, I don't think I'll get to this, but it is the basis of the title is God is greater than our hearts. God is greater than our hearts. So if you just think of the, the he is greater than I uh, logo, right? You just have God greater than our hearts. That's, that comes from verses 19 through 24, which I said is I, ironic because I won't really get to that. As I was getting to the sermon, I was like, this is just, just too much. There's just too much in 11 to 18. I, I, I'm going to land there. So um, bear with me if you wonder why. Uh, did he not even talk about how God is greater than our hearts in this sermon? If I had to retitle it on the fly, I suppose I would say it's quite simple. Love one another. Love one another. So if you're just joining us, we are working through John's epistle of 1 John, the apostle. And we've seen there has been a, a rupture in the church. There has been people who have left the church. This happens sometimes in churches. And, and those who were left behind were wondering whether they, in fact, were on the right side or was the other crew on the right side. And we found this false teaching had uh, three elements that John is addressing. There are three tests that have emerged in the course of the letter to how you can know whether you have the real thing, authentic Christianity. And John delineates three simple tests that aren't so simple after all, but they are simple on the face of it. The first one is the obedience test. Do you obey God? Do you walk in the light? Are you in fellowship with Him? Do you obey? The second test is the doctrine test. Do you believe right truth about God? It's not just enough to know God, 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 but who is God? How has He revealed Himself? And John answers, in the name of His only begotten Son, Jesus. If you don't come to God through Jesus, you don't come at all, is the message of 1 John. That's the doctrine test. And then the love test, the test of love. Do you love the brothers, the people of God? And so John has a very unique style of writing. He kind of goes in a circle. He, he says something, 
he leaves it and talks about other things and then comes back to it and comes back. And every, every time he comes back, he expands a little bit more. And so this is now the second time, at least, that John is now addressing love. It's not the last time. He's going to address it again in chapter 4. So this is the third test. And what 19 verses 19 through 24 do in chapter 3 is they fuse all three tests together so that we see they're not really separate tests. Rather, they are the same as or different aspects of a genuine reality that the gospel will transform you. It will transform your beliefs about God. It will transform your obedience to God, your entire life, and it will transform your very affections of the things that you love, namely the people of God. We must remember the context. John has said, little children, it is the last hour. It is the last hour. So with John, there is a sense of urgency in what he's writing. There is a sense of, of we must do this now. In the last quarter of a game, in the last seconds of a basketball game, you leave everything on the court. You go as hard as you can. You just go for it. So you don't hold back. And so it is, if you ever have been next to a dying person, some of you young people, not yet, the day is coming. If you've ever been next to a dying person, many times the things they are speaking in their last moments with their final breaths are the most dear to their hearts. And John is saying it is the last hour. We ought to pay attention. We ought to pay attention to what he has to say. So let's pray, and we're going to get into this. Father in heaven, what a rich letter this is, inspired by your spirit's recorded for us, so that we might become conformed more to the image of Christ. Teach us, teach us, I pray, what it truly means and what it does not mean to love one another. And as you do this, may the love of Christ at the cross of Christ be magnified and exalted for sinners. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, here's the big idea. Here's the big idea in the sermon. It's very simple. John has a very simple way of writing. The devil's children take life. The devil's children take life. God's children lovingly lay theirs down for other believers. That's it. The devil's children take life. God's children lovingly lays down their lives for other believers. I have three points, but I'm actually only going to get to two today. The first one is Cain's hatred. The second point is Christ's love. Cain's hatred, Christ's love. And if I were going to expound on verses 19 through 24, I'd probably have four additional points in addition to the one I have. But like I said, time's sake, we will not do so. We'll, we'll hit it next week. Number one. Cain's hatred. Now remember the context, right? Chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And then he goes on in verses 4 through 10, and now he's giving evidence. How can you know 
a, a genuine believer from a false professor. Here's a shock. Not everybody in churches, if you're visiting with us, not everybody in church is a child of God. It's true. Not everybody who holds membership in a local church is a child of God. There are goats and there are lambs. There are wheats and there are tares. Sometimes they look and sound very similar and they are very different. And so John is giving us evidences. How can you know? How can you know? One, that you possess the real thing, and two, how will you know when you see the false, the, the fake? And so John is simultaneously, in a very pastoral manner, comforting the saints. How can you have confidence before God? And confronting false professors. And confronting. He's comforting and he's confronting in verses 4 through 10, the main mark, he says, of a false professor is somebody who makes a practice of sinning. They make a practice of sinning. It is a habitual way of life. Or put another way, they're not actively practicing righteousness. So if we had to say, how can you know whether you have the real thing or how can you identify a true child of God, look at their lifestyle. Look at their lifestyle. What is the characteristic of their speech? We looked at that last week, so we won't spend much time. Look at their lifestyle, their speech, their conduct, their patterns, their behaviors. What do they value? What do they love? What do they get angry about? Do they love the things of God? And then he ends that section with where we're going to camp today, another piece of evidence by which we can identify the children of the devil and he says, those who don't love the people of God are not born of God. Those who don't love the people of God are not born of God. So before we get into verse 11, what the message means, right? This is what he says. This is a message you have heard from the beginning, okay? He said, you've heard this over and over and over again. Our culture will tell you this over and over and over and over again. Even if you're not a Christian, you hear people say, every religion in the world just has kind of the same teaching. You should love one another. You just love people. Be nice to people. Right? That's what we hear. John is concerned that we would love one another as God in Christ has loved us. There's a very distinct aspect to this type of love. But before we get into it, John tells us what it does not look like. So sometimes, in order to see something, it helps to know what it is not, right? I have a dog. It is not a little dog. That tells you something, right? It's a what? It's a big dog. She is a big dog. But it's not as large as Jay Haynes' dog, which is a mastodor or something. <laughs> Sounds like a dinosaur. You see, I haven't told you anything about my dog, but I've told you a lot. It's big, but it's not ginormous. You see, so John tells us what this love is first by telling us what it is not. And he gives us, again, both comfort and he 
confronts us. And like every good teacher, John uses an illustration. He sees the value of illustrations, especially biblical ones, and he points to a very well-known, famous account in Genesis chapter 4. He says in verse 11 or 12, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, of the devil, he's referring to, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. And so he draws us back to Cain, Cain and Abel, Genesis chapter 4. We also have to realize the Bible they read didn't have chapter division. So when he goes back to the story of Cain and Abel, also what's right around that story, Bible scholars, what's right around there? The fall, Genesis chapter 3, and the serpent and the curses. John's point in pulling up this contrast between Cain and Abel as he's talking about the people of God and the people of the devil is to highlight the persecution of the people of God from the children of the devil, the offspring of the serpent as it's put in Genesis chapter 3. If you go to 3.15, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, as you're seeing God's curses pronounced on creation as a result of Adam and Eve's disobedience, you come to this passage to the serpent, and God says, I will put enmity or hatred, strife, between you and the woman, and between your offspring or your seed and her offspring and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. See, it's no accident that right after Genesis 3 and 4, or right after Genesis 3 comes Genesis chapter 4, which is what? Cain murdering Abel. Literally, the seed of the serpent persecuting or killing now the seed of God, Abel, the people of God. And John's point in pulling this up is to hold this up and say, it's been like this since the beginning. It's still happening today. And John wants us to learn from it. So it's worth asking, he says, we should not be like Cain, right? We should not be like Cain. So it's worth asking, what does it look like to be like Cain? Fair? How would I know? How would you know if you were like Cain? So let's see a little bit. I've got three ways that you can be like Cain. I actually can think of more, but these are the main ways. How do we be like Cain? Number one, having malicious thoughts, malicious, malintent, malicious thoughts, intents, or actions toward other believers when we see them excel in worship or spiritual growth. Having malicious thoughts, intentions, actions, or behaviors towards other believers when we see them excel in worship or spiritual growth. Sometimes this shows up in envy, jealousy. It's that little twinge of dissatisfaction that you feel when you see somebody do something better than you and everybody else praises him for it. 
Maybe with the choir, it's someone singing a solo or maybe appears to have a better voice. Or in the body of Christ, you see somebody maybe elevated in stature and they're growing in their spiritual disciplines. Maybe they memorize a whole chapter of the Bible. And it's that little twinge of dissatisfaction when you see them excelling and being praised that can result in malicious intents or thoughts or actions or behaviors if not guarded against and repented from. Second way we can be like Cain. If you remember, Abel brought an offering to God and it was accepted and Cain brought an offering to God and it was what? Rejected. It was rejected and Cain got angry. His face fell, the scriptures say. And so the second way we can be like Cain is through anger, avoidance, or criticism, this is related to the first one, toward other believers when their spiritual growth reveals our spiritual deficiency. Anger, avoidance, or criticism toward other believers when their spiritual growth reveals our spiritual deficiency. So the other one was kind of focused on them. This comes a little bit of aspect of focused on me. Their excelling is kind of revealing my deficiency. So in a, in a marriage, perhaps, you go out to dinner with a married couple, and, and they're, they're loving each other, and you just see the husband over here, and he's just like loving on his wife, and he's like doing dishes for her and all these things like that. And all of a sudden, you feel this little twinge of like, hmm. And your wife might be feeling it too. She's like, hmm, I wish... Wish you might be a little bit more like that, Randy, or, or whatever it is, right? Or, or I'm now sensing this uh, sense of, hmm, this, they're excelling in a spiritual heart of servitude is revealing my spiritual deficiency. And that can result in either anger towards that person, or I can maybe avoid them so that their continued presence isn't continuing to reveal my deficiency. Maybe when I see them, I'll go the other way. Or maybe and in some cases, criticism towards them. So instead of recognizing their spiritual growth and strength, maybe in an underhanded way or in a, a dress-it-up type of godly way, I might be critical towards them, and I'll, I'll highlight a fault of theirs. You see, all these things are present in the people of God. If I were to start giving examples, I'm sure every one of you would be pierced to the soul. Anger, avoidance, or criticism toward other believers when their spiritual growth reveals our spiritual deficiency. Three, I said three, deceitfulness or deflection when you're confronted or challenged in your sinfulness. Deceitfulness or deflection when you are confronted or challenged in your sinfulness. Cain calls his brother Abel into the field. He rises up against him, kills him. God comes and says, Cain, where's your brother Abel? He lies, deceitful, I don't know. And then deflection. Am I my brother's keeper? You see... He's shifting the attention somewhere else. Let's have a theological conversation. God, am I my brother's keeper? We like to do that sometimes when we deflect 
Let's, let's make it a theological issue. Is this even my responsibility? And now we're talking about what's your responsibility instead of what? Where's Abel? So sometimes we can deflect and be like Cain when we're confronted in our sinfulness. Let's, let's talk about something else. Let's talk about your problem. Oh, well, I see you do this. Let's talk about that. How, who are you to talk to me? We're deflecting. We're deflecting. Or deceitfulness. I don't know. I don't know. Deceitfulness is so sticky. We'll say, well, well my perspective was this. Or a half-truth. Or a full lie. I don't know where he is when you really do. Half-truths, deceitfulness, any number of ways will yield that we are like Cain and our hearts need to repent. John says, don't be like that. Don't be like Cain. When you do something wrong, when you mess up, when you're confronted, don't deflect. Don't deceive. Own it and embrace the grace of God that forgives sinners of all stripes. Whew. Convicted yet? Should we end? No, I got some no, some straight face. We'll keep going. At the end of the day, John summarized Cain's motives in verse 12. Why did Cain murder Abel? Verse 12, because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Some of you in here have a problem with a godly person you have all these reasons why you think they're not good, why you think they aren't following Jesus. But at the end of the day, if we heed John's warning, you really need to consider whether your problem with them is owning to your own evil deeds. Think of somebody you don't like in the body of Christ, maybe a person in here or a person in another church, or somebody from your past. What John is saying is we need to consider whether my problem with them is really a result of my own evil deeds and being around them possibly exposes our lack of righteousness and we can't stand it. And rather than being humble and confessing our weakness and seeking to grow, we stand off from the side of them and criticize them or nitpick them. Lord, help us. Help us not to be like Cain. Help us not to be like Cain. John goes on to say, don't be surprised when the world hates you the way Cain hated Abel. Sometimes people will say, man, I've, I've tried to obey God. I've been faithful. I go to Sunday school. I serve. I've been in the church. I help other people. And this is what I get in return? This is what happens to me? And they're hurt. And John says, yep. Yep. This is what happens to you. If you are righteous... If you are righteous, don't be surprised if the world 
hates you, for so they did to your master and more. Paul tells young Timothy that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Don't be surprised. It's been this way since the beginning, and it will remain so until the Lord comes. Persevere in obedience. Trust in God. The young lady who's saying that, trust in God. Whenever things don't work out, I will trust in you. Thank you. That is biblical. John works through the passage in verse 14, and he closes the last loophole that a child of the devil might try to find somewhere to to wiggle in and stand. He, He closes it off. That's what he says in verse 14. We know, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Whoever does, you see that? Whoever does not love abides in death. Now, this is what what might happen. After all of that, we might say, you know what? I don't hate the people of God. I don't have any malicious intent. I'm not trying to deceive anybody. I don't get angry at their advancements. I don't criticize them. Clearly, clearly, I'm a Christian. I'm good. John says, not so fast. Not so fast. He closes the last loophole. John says, it is not enough to say all of that. He asks the question, do you actively love them? You see the difference? I don't, I don't hate them. Do you actively love them? Whoever does not love the brothers abides in death, he says. You remain dead, no matter what the exterior looks like. Which leads us to our next point. How would we know, how would we know that you're actively loving the people of God? So, so now you know Cain's hatred. What does it look like to be like Cain? Don't do that. How do you know, beloved, that you are being like Christ? Which leads us to our second point. Christ's love. Christ's love. In verses 16 to 18. Let's read it briefly. It says this, by this we know that he laid down his life for us. Sorry, by this we know love that he, that is Jesus, laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against them, how does, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Let us love in deed and in truth. How do we know what love is? John says, Jesus laid his very life down for us. And we ought to do the same for our brothers and sisters. Think briefly with me real fast. First century church. What is Paul referring to? Or sorry, John referring to? If, if you had another believer and they say, I bow the knee to Jesus as Lord and not Caesar, what happens to them? They get thrown where? In prison. In prison. 
We take our lovely prisons for granted today. You get fed three meals, you have a toilet, you have uh, mostly a change of clothes fairly soon, a soft bed to sleep on. Not in the first century. The first century and even some prisons today, if you get thrown into jail, you don't get food. They don't feed you unless somebody brings it to you. You don't get a change of clothes unless somebody brings it to you. You don't have visitors unless somebody comes to see you. Now, somebody just bowed their knee to Jesus. They are now in Caesar's prison, under guard. And everybody who comes in to visit that prisoner is going to be taken note of, aren't they? The only reason you're coming to see this man who bowed the knee to Jesus and you're not related to them, must be that you too, what? Bow the knee to Jesus. You see the great, great level of sacrifice and courage needed. And John says, if you have the world's good in spite of all of that, you see your brothers in need and sisters in need, and you close your heart against them, even at great risk to your own self, he says, how can God's love abide in you? That's heavy. That's heavy. This is the message John said we have had from the beginning. We should love one another. Not with a fluffy kind of fake love. It's only word and talk. But with a self-giving, self-sacrificing love that results in deed and truth. Listen to me, beloved. One pastor said this. This is really, really important, okay? Check this out. This is one one pastor said. It was actually really profound. One of the most common, effective, and unnoticed forms of demonic activity in the body of Christ. Think about this. The most common, the most effective, and unnoticed forms of demonic, satanic activity in the body of Christ. What do you think it is? Lovelessness for the people of God. One of the most common forms of demonic activity, lovelessness for the people of God. Let that sink in for a minute. See, sometimes you have people and they, they might kind of jokingly say, you might have said this, I just, I just really don't like people. I just don't like people. Right? You've seen this? The best thing about work, or the worst thing about work is what? The people. The people you work with. Beloved, even if, even if jokingly, even if it partially reflects a reality of your heart, you must recognize that in a very real sense, that is a remnant of your old father, the devil. If, if that is even a partial reality in your heart, that I, I don't like people, people at church kind of irritate me, that's why I don't like to go to church. If that's even a, a joking but partial reality in your heart, that is a remnant of your fallenness. Your new father loves people. He loves sinful people. 
He is rich in mercy and grace. He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness towards sinners and seeks them out in every way possible. And this love of God doesn't just cause you to love people who are like you, who share your common culture, a common history. It compels you to reach out to everybody that the Lord brings in your path, no matter how alike or unalike you may be. See, if you love people who only share your common interests or maybe who are your age only or you went to school with them or you work with them, you love people who are just like you, you're only exercising a broader form of selfishness. Think about that. You're only exercising a broader form of selfishness. Essentially, you love yourself. And you love everybody who is like yourself. Even unbelievers love like that. It's no sign of the divine love of God at work in your heart when you love people who are just like you. The evidence of God's love is seen in your love for the diverse people of God. Now think about this. Consider this. You can't fulfill this command in isolation, can you? Can you fulfill this command apart from gathering with the people of God? Love one another. Okay, I'm going to do it at home. While I watch David Platt sermons, while I watch John Piper sermons, while I watch Matt Chandler sermons. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this command at home and love the believers. You can't. You can't do it. And yet, John says this is an essential characteristic of people who are born of God, that they love other people who are born of God. You must gather with believers regularly to accomplish this. How often I hear people say, I, I don't need to go to church to have a relationship with God. My, my church is on the beach. My church is, is on the golf course, 18th hole. My church is with ESPN. Besides, everybody in church, they're all hypocrites anyways, right? Amen? You better say Amen. You all know you don't live up to your profession. You ever hear that before? You've heard that. Maybe you've said that. You know what I hear? I hear echoes of Cain. I hear the voice of the adversary who stands and lovelessly accuses the people of God. Hypocrites. I don't need them. I'm fine just how I am. Is that not an accusation against the people of God? Is that not what the accuser does day and night before the throne of God who regularly accuses the people of God and lovelessly says these things about him? John says otherwise, if you don't love the people of God enough to know them, to gather with them, to seek to meet their needs tangibly, he says you're a liar. You're a liar and you remain in death. The stark words. 
How can it mean anything else? You must gather with other believers to accomplish this. Consider why you're here. So you can't do this in isolation. So now you're here. Why? To love God? To worship Him? Why are you here? What are you doing? See, one of the purposes in gathering regularly with other believers is not necessarily so you can be loved by them. Think about that. One of your purposes in gathering with other believers is not primarily so that you can experience or be loved by them. Now, I hope that will happen, okay? That ought to happen. If you're here, I hope you know we love you. We, want to, we have a home for you here. You are welcome here. The family of God, red, yellow, black, and white, they are precious in His sight. No matter what your background is, what your history is, there is a place for you here. I hope you will feel loved. Amen. You ought to. But that's not why you're here. It's not why you're here. What you are here for is to evidence, one of the things is to evidence, to display your status as a child of God in loving other imperfect people regardless of how they respond to you. That's one of the purposes you gather in church. That's one one of the reasons why you go. How do you know that you have been born of God? Because when I go and I gather with other people, I love them. I love them as imperfect as they are, as much as they sin against me. I love them, and I want to know them, and I want to meet their needs, not because this is just who I am, but because God is at work within me, and I can't help doing otherwise. Every Sunday, every Wednesday, every Tuesday, every small group, you get the opportunity as a child of God, to evidence your new nature when you gather with the redeemed. Don't take the, I'll, I'll wait here, I'll sit in the pew, and I'll wait for somebody to come talk to me approach. It's not why you're here. Take the, I'm going to pursue these people the way God has pursued me for the glory of God, because as other people see my love for these people, they'll know I'm a disciple. And here's what you're going to find. Here's what you're going to find as you start to do that. You're going to find it's really easy to love people you don't know. Super easy to love people you don't know. I don't know you guys. I don't know you guys. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. I don't know you. I love you. It's easy for me to love you. I see the smiles. They're beautiful, handsome. But I I don't know you. I don't know what makes you tick. I don't know what what struggles you have. I don't know uh, anything really about you. It's easy to love people, and you probably love me. It's easy to love people you don't know. Everybody loves to go on mission trips. Man, I want to go to South Africa or North Korea. Those people are just so loving. They're so hungry. You don't know those people. The same sins that people around you struggle with are the same sins that they struggle with. really easy to love people you don't know and really difficult to love people you do know. The closer you get to people, the more difficult it is to love them because the more of their imperfections you see. 
When you're far away from something, it's hard to see the imperfections, but when you get up close, you see all the cracks. It's difficult to love people you don't know, and thank God, praise God, be to our great God that he doesn't love us the same way we love other people. Amen. He was beaten, shamed, nailed to a cross, had a crown of thorns affixed to his head. A spear was thrust literally through his side. And finally, perhaps the worst part of all of it was that he was abandoned for the first time in all of eternity from his heavenly Father and bore the wrath of God for our sins, for our mistakes, for our shortcomings. And yet, yet... He loved us anyways. Some of us, oh, you didn't say hi to me, you're out. They didn't invite me to their party, I'm done. God, help us. Help us to love one another. What is wrong with us? Until people in church or elsewhere nail you to a cross, you ought to keep loving them. I know my audience, there's some wisecracks in here. You're going to say, so when they nail me to a cross, I can stop loving them? No. When they do, then you pray, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Beloved, love one another by laying your life down for them. There ought to be no needy people among the people of God. Think about that. There ought to be no needy people among the people of God. I've been so blessed by some of you who have the world's goods, and you are actively and constantly seeking out ways to meet the needs of the saints. There's a few people who do that regularly. You know who you are. I want to encourage you. This is evidence of God's love in you. Praise God. There are others. You claim to love God and you've done very little or nothing to help your brothers and sisters in need. Much like the priests and the, and the Levite on the, the Good Samaritan, they're just too busy passing by their brother in need. I'm just too busy. I want to challenge you this morning, cast your lot in with the people of God. Cast your lot in with the people of God. Demonstrate it by serving God's people. If you're not involved, if you're not serving, if you're not helping in any way that you can, and regardless of your health or state of life, you are not loving as God's commands. I want to invite you today Begin to learn what it is to love. Do you love God? Do you love the people of God? Or are you more like Cain? I hope not. And if this is you, you're here today. Maybe you are Cain. You've actually murdered or you've hated or you've done something terribly evil, and you say, Pastor Randy, that's just me. I'm, I am Cain. I want you to know Christ loves you. We love you, and he invites you and will accept you if today, if today you will return. You will return to him. He will teach you what true love is. He will teach all of us what true love is, how it acts, 
And best of all, he does it by showing us. Let us love one another like this. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us. We need your help. In many ways, we all fall short of this great love. Help us to love one another like this. Help us to give sacrificially. Help us to lay our very lives down for your people. And there are some in here whose heart is actively condemning them right now. At the end of the day, we don't look to our evidence of love. We look to Christ, who is greater than our hearts. May you be honored and magnified through the response of your people in singing and worship and acts of love this week. In Jesus' name, amen.